Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. to do it more gently be, be a little be a little quiet quiet little mouse little welcome mouse. back to the Cribsiders. we're being very quiet today for some reason Why? we're being quiet um i got feedback it's important to always respond to good feedback i got the feedback that i peaked a little too early in the show so we're gonna start start a little soft and then we're gonna build we're gonna build uh because we got a great show isn't that right guys just i always peak too our- early just as our weight should slowly go up as a baby, our slowly. volume will s- slowly climb. We're going to thrive. Just like our, our growth curve. Oh. We're thriving at a reasonable rate. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everyone. Um, I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chew Manchu and hi. our outstanding producer, Dr. Shannon Snellgrove. Say hi, Shannon. Hello. We are excited to have you back. Shannon has been one of the original uh, Cribsiders producers. We're so excited to have her back on air as a resident. How's intern year treating you, Shannon? It's a lot. It yeah. is. <laughs> it's great. It is fun. I'm learning so much every single day, um, but it's definitely a lot. So it's good to be back, though. It's been a while since I've since I've done one of these. So. We have missed you and are excited to have you back. And I think this was a great one to come back because we had an outstanding guest, Dr. Aldofo Molina, to discuss failure to thrive, a core pediatric topic. Um, but before we go into the content, hey, Chris. Yeah. What do we do on the show? Oh, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Molina, or more lovingly known as Adolfo, who is an associate professor of pediatrics at UAB, University of Alabama in Birmingham at Children's Hospital, where he is a pediatric hospitalist. Um, He has special interests in teaching QI and social determinants of health, specifically in international adoptees and foster families. In this episode, he teaches us about the three buckets of failure to thrive in our that are make up our differential, the red flags to keep an eye on, and how this hospital workup may actually be something that an outpatient provider can do. Now, I just want everyone to stick with the episode because it'll grow on you. Oh. Hey. That's, That's pretty good. good. And so, uh, Dr. Adolfo Molina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. I'm just honored to be here. We are excited to have you. We're excited to talk about Failure to Thrive. We're grateful for your expertise. And before we dive into the content, we always like to introduce our speakers to our audience. And so before we start, can you give us a little bit of a one-liner introduction uh, about yourself? Sure, yeah. So I'm a pediatric hospitalist at UAB and... uh, I'm a dad of three, foster and adoptive parent, and uh, kind of an epic QI nerd. That's kind of my world of where I live mostly. I have so much respect for the the foster adoptive parents that come in to, to clinic. That's that's an amazing experience. I can't believe that's incredible. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and you know, obviously, a lot of that a lot of that credit goes to my amazing wife, who does 
a lot of the groundwork for those things. Um, but yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. How old are your kids? Uh, they're five, three, uh, five. She just turned four and two. So full house. Yeah, it's exciting times around here. Nice. I guess my my first question will be, what's what's the favorite book right now at at, at bedtime? Right, that you guys are doing. Ooh, at bedtime, man. You know they're starting to get into um, being readers. So there's this like uh, my oldest. He's really starting to get into them. Oh, there's like a whole series of books, and now I'm blanking on it. Um, the Magic Treehouse. Man, I, there's some really good Hungry Caterpillar. I, I like uh, oh Gerald the Giraffe. I don't know if you guys have read Gerald oh. Giraffe. It's uh-huh. one of my favorite ones, more for when they were younger, but it's so good. It's like one of my favorite ones. Uh, that's a classic that I like to use for uh, my kids. I nice. feel very called out in in like primary care clinic for whenever I'm on the Pete side and I go and get a, po- a book for a child. And I'm like, I, and they ask me, is it good? And I'm like, I have no idea. No idea. Looks good. We're gonna, You'll get there. You'll we'll get go there. with this one. <laughs> I always just tell them it's a really good ending. Oh. <laughs> Try to see if they made it that far. Monster and the end of the book. That's a that's a good one. That's a good ending. Yeah. The twist. <laughs> what about books that uh, you read? Have you any book recommendations for uh, physicians or other learners? Yeah, I think, you know, it's always kind of like recent memories where you remember my favorite uh, most recent book, even as a pediatrician, is Being Mortal uh, by Atul Gawande. I mean, you know, I guess you can't really pick up a book from him and not be impressed and learn a ton. Another one, man, for especially if you're going into academics and want to teach, there's a book called The Intelligence Trap. Um, and it's just an, it's a book about how smart people do really dumb things and how we like these biases that we have and how we can get into cycles of just convincing ourselves of things. It's really good. Um, and then when breath becomes air, switch, all good ones. So Chris and I have never had that issue with our intelligence getting in the way of getting things that we. I could gather that from you guys. You guys seem like the kind of 100% right kind of guys. So. <laughs> totally. It's the other way. Um, one of our favorite questions to ask on the show, um, and one that I am definitely learning every time I hear this on the show, um, especially being an intern, I love to hear the answer to this question. What is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this question and, you know, I think the reality is that it's not one big epic one. It's probably the everyday reminders uh, that are that keep me humble. The All the multiple times I ordered the thing wrong. And then I think the classic refrain is like, I always, <laughs> you always know, it's like, did you really mean to? And it's like these, it's normally some like awesome pharmacist or nurse on the other side of the line that's helping me not hurt a child. And um, those are almost daily you know i think you know they get spaced out for different things but um i think it's just constant i don't know if there's one big one it's just all the time humility that's been really good love it. i love it nice should we just jump into it let's do it let's do it all right hey uh so shannon do you want to introduce our our first uh our first bid case yeah absolutely so Tonight, we're talking about failure to thrive, obviously. So we have a wonderful case um, for us. Our patient's name is Minnie, and she is an eight-week-old female. Uh, she's an ex-39-weeker who presented to clinic at Cashlack Children's for a well-child visit, and she's noted to have poor weight gain at clinic. She'd initially been gaining weight well at her two-week checkup, but subsequently at her four, six, and eight-week checkups, she had been noted to not be gaining weight. And now she's eight weeks old, and now she's even lost weight. 
Her mom reports that she had trouble latching in the newborn nursery at home. Uh, and at home, she switched to formula around one week of life. She then started to spit up regularly at home, so was switched to a different formula at four weeks of life. And we have some growth chart um, percentiles for us. Our, her head circumference is 45th percentile, length is 30th percentile, and her weight is less than 5th percentile. So whenever you kind of hear this, what are you, what are you thinking of? Yeah, so that's always such a, that's, and it's interesting because that's a lot of detail. And yet, uh, when I think of failure to thrive, there's so much more. Um, really, it's just so much of it is in the history and getting into every little bit of the detail. But certainly, you know, there's, I think, young child, uh, young infant, uh, really recently out of the neonate phase uh, with trouble growing. And that's, you know, that is the bread and butter of probably the majority of pediatrics, uh, pediatric failure to thrive that we see. And what do you define as failure to thrive? When does it become worrisome? When is, you know, as a clinician thinking about sending this to the ED, or when is the ED doc even thinking about um, this is something that really warrants maybe even inpatient care? Sure. Yeah. That, you know, that, that question about when to hospitalize or if it's hospitalized is always a little tricky. Um, the reality that matters, the majority of fail to thrive care can be done as an outpatient in the ambulatory setting. I'm a little painted, so I always like, I think it's probably worth saying like upfront, I'm a pediatric hospitalist. So I have a different point of view when patients come to me, I'm at a different point in the severity and time course of their illness. But I mean, we have these conversations all the time with uh, my colleagues out in the community. And the question always ends up being, what is it that we can do during a hospitalization to really help? Trying to get the sense of why they're worried. And I'd say probably some of the the biggest reasons would be, honestly, just like pediatricians who've tried and they've been following this kid for a week after week after week. And normally it's really in the young infancy stage where, you know, there's so much vital growth going and people are thinking about neurodevelopmental outcomes and things are falling off the rails. That's where probably the majority of them are that I think of that need to be coming in. And then obviously the the more obvious things are, is the kid dehydrated probably? Like, have they been just intractable vomiting and emesis? Those are a little bit easier. Or if they, normally it's a pediatrician who calls me and like, I'm really worried about XYZ specific disease and I need you to help me expedite it. Um, I just can't do it quickly in the outpatient world and it could potentially harm a child. What do, can we go back and what are definitions of failure to thrive? Why are we worried about this? When is this something that should be in our radar? What are we talking about when we talk about failure to thrive? Yeah. So failure to thrive, uh, which, the fun thing about it is that it, there's probably not one universally accepted um, definition on it. I think everyone has different ones and they all have weaknesses and strengths. Again, a hospitalist. So my favorite, and I think it's probably the most valuable is weight over time. So specifically thinking about general uh, weight for age or weight for length that's crossing two percentiles or two Z scores around that time. There's other measurements. There's uh, single point measurements that are really helpful because unlike myself where I get more data, sometimes somebody just shows up with a single data point. So you have to have something to kind of help put them in a frame of reference. But definitely over time, seeing somebody because life's a bell curve. I guess that's the way I always try to think about it. And everyone is on this bell curve. And it's kind of like that classic. I feel like they, I, I think about it a lot because of medical school. When I got into medical school, they gave you that speech. You're like, life's a bell curve. You were used to be over here, but now you're here. And it was a friendly reminder uh, that I wasn't going to be as good as I am, as I felt like I was. And the same way for weight, like some kids are going to be the third to fifth percentile and just ride that percentile. And that doesn't cause immediate alarm. So that's why I think over time is such a helpful measurement. That being said, the probably the things that are most advocated for by like nutritionist societies, NASPGAN, 
would be weight for length uh, measurements. So again, less than two years of age where BMI you wouldn't use as much. And then also there's a lot of mid-arm circumference data from NHANES, but some of that stuff in pediatrics is just a little challenging. Um, there's, some there's some issues with the reliability of some of those measurements, which is why I think straight weight for age can be some of the most helpful uh, over time for me. So when we're talking about age as well, like, is there like an age limit to we stop talking about failure to thrive or, or not? Yeah, you know that the reality is, I think when, when you talk to the pediatrician, a pediatrician's mind, when we say the word failure to thrive, we're thinking about infants, so the less than one year old. Uh, and then we probably tend to use more words like malnourishment um, for patients who are older. That being said, uh, I actually find an article titled like geriatric failure to thrive. And I was like, oh, I guess, I guess some of you know, they use that term outside of pediatric. But in the, in the pediatric realm, for the vast majority, we're thinking about uh, infants, really. So speaking on malnutrition, I was always kind of in the hospital whenever I had one of these patients. I didn't know whether we were just calling it failure to thrive or is this failure to thrive and malnutrition or when does it actually become malnutrition? Yeah, I think that's that. And I think there's a shift here in the way we think and talk about it. Um, so really failure to thrive is supposed to be a physical sign of malnutrition or undernutrition. While malnutrition they strive with that, and there's, we're getting a lot of, again, advocacy from the NASPGAN, Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, the WHO, when the, you use these words, trying to aim more towards using malnutrition that has more specific specific diagnostic criteria um, versus failure to thrive, which also just just sounds sad, right? Like it just, it also has like this connotation to it that doesn't feel as good socially, um, maybe a little bit of stigma there. So that's why um, we use it. And then also diagnostically and for coding purposes, just from like a broader scope, failure to thrive is not a diagnostic code. Really, their coders are looking for with ICD-10s mild, moderate, or severe malnutrition. I feel like those are the people that really made the distinction or the, the billing coding <laughs> query people who say, uh, you know, I noticed failure to thrive, but is it, is it really malnutrition? Yeah. They're always been in charge, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's probably like ICD-10, uh, failure to thrive due to left toe injury or something small, I know. Um, so you mentioned the uh, weight for length being one of those really great metrics. And so what else are we looking for on on the growth chart? Is there specific things that make you more worried, like if length is also going down? Are there things that uh, uh, we need to take into account when we're looking at the growth chart? When, when an expert like yourself looks at the growth chart, what, what are they looking at? Or what, what are some tips to, to kind of approach that that data? Yeah. No, you know, it's, what's fun is a lot of times when I get medical students on uh, rounds with me on hospital medicine... Well, one of my favorite things, a lot of times they'll have come through uh, the nursery before they see me. And I get to be, it's just very analogous to the way we think about newborn infants too. So that concept of somebody who is small for gestational age because of their weight, typically their weight, but you can't have it for a different parameter, another one of the other growth parameters. But for me, it's so helpful to remind, uh, to remind them to use that same thought process. Like, is it symmetric or is it asymmetric? And just remembering that our bodies are made such that our body will preferentially feed calories to the brain at all costs. And hence, if something's wrong with head circumference size, that is concerning. If it's not being spared for other underlying conditions, that's where I'm less, where I'm more worried about, hey, is this from something that's not just nutritionally based enough in versus some other underlying genetic condition or chronic infectious etiology? So I think there is uh, a lot to that. And then a lot of, in the same way that we think the other analogy would be like for um, obesity and trying to think about um, Cushing syndrome and all those things. There's there's pearls for endocrine conditions. And one of those is also if you have height that is preserved in specific, in particular, 
that makes endocrinologic causes really less likely to have systematic disease from that. So it sounds like microcephaly bad, and if height's preserved, less likely endocrinology. Yeah, I think that's the way to remember. Like the way things are going to happen good. with the with the child body is weight's going to be first thing to drop off, then height, and then head circumference. And if Love it doesn't go in that order, something that's a red flag. Do we ever run into problems with the different types of growth charts we have? We have WHO, we have our preemie charts. Like, you know, can you look at one failure to thrive and be like, well, if I use this other chart, they're probably going to be all right. Like, is that is that an issue? Yeah, no, you're right. And um, they're, by, and they're, they're like continuously adding. So I would, actually was checking this on our, uh, our electronic medical record, and we have 27 different growth chart disease types. Um, and that's just what we have on our system. You know, we're not on Epic yet, so I'm sure there's 50 more that are going to be awesome. Um, so yeah, I think it does, it does challenging, again, it goes back to the challenge of the single point definitions that there are of failure to thrive or malnourishment, because in the end, it doesn't give the picture of time and really what's been going on. I think that's still the biggest issue with it. And then of course, if there's physical signs and symptoms that are concerning, but really for a lot of our failure to thrive, it, it's pretty, I'd say it's pretty uncommon for us to see them with a lot of like frank symptoms of distress or, you know, real abdominal distension or other things that are, really stand out. A lot of times it's just kids not getting weight and or losing weight. And speaking of these kind of different medical charts um, or different medical conditions for that have their own growth charts, um, what are some specific ones that are very important for us to use? Yeah, I think, gosh, and there's so many of them. I think you use the ones you use the most are the ones you think about the most. So again, that probably just lines up with which conditions are more common for us to think about. So when I was looking through this list of 27, I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of neat. I didn't even know we had those. But the ones that I know for sure, you'll most people will know about with a lot with a fair amount of comfort will be achondroplasia because uh, they're going to their, their growth parameters are going to be different. Trisomy 21 and then Turner syndrome are probably some of the most, again, and that just reflects that they're the most common diseases that we see genetic diseases in uh, the population. And as far as growth charts go, are there some that are more reliable than others? Or how reliable are these growth charts in general when we're using them as a data point? Yeah, I think it goes, uh, and it goes back to the fact why I like my favorite uh, concept of defining it is over time, because, and really not just over time, but also why weight for age is one of my favorite uh, measurements just as a gross term rather than weight for length, because I think there's lots of studies out there that talk about the inaccuracies of length. Um, so if anyone's actually ever seen a kid measured, they literally like the most common ways you lay them out on the bed, right? You lay them out on the bed and you kind of like tick where their head is and you kind of tick where their feet are. And um, then you try to figure out like, so like, so that creates a whole group of issues for kids who have like cerebral palsy, um, arthrogryposis, like how do you actually get body surface area? Um, so there are challenges to the reliability of growth charts that have to be stated, but that's why sometimes weight is is a little bit easier because you can put them on there and just weigh them, recognizing that voiding and stooling patterns from day to day change. But again, over time, even even with length, because even if you measure length unreliably over time, uh, it probably there's still probably a trend there that's helpful um, to some extent. All right, so as we know. I'm the intern that's here. And I, of course, want to know what am I going to have to write a note about about this kid? So what should be um, in our differential anytime we have a kid that comes in with failure to thrive? What are kind of the buckets that you want to you want to always think about when it comes to what could be causing this? Yeah, that's actually one of the things I love uh, about 
this diagnosis because it's so, when I think about the buckets, it's just so logical and it's easy. I think sometimes you talk to a medical student, you ask them like, what are the causes of failure to thrive? And they kind of like freeze up for a second. But then if you pause and say, hey, uh, if you were trying to lose weight, what are the different ways? What are the different broad ways that that happens? What's the different broad ways that anybody loses weight? And then it becomes a little bit, you can step back and be like, oh, okay, well, this is easier. So not enough in, too much out, burning up too much. Um, and as long as you have that kind of big frame of reference, you can get into the details of the differential, but all of it's going to be driven by the history. Um, and then also knowing that the reality of matter is 90 plus percent of the time, it's going to be not enough in. And, um, you know, Nelson's talks about somewhere around 50 to 60%, but I don't know, I've seen more and more studies. And then anecdotally in my own practice, definitely 90 plus percent of the time, it's not enough in. And when when you say not enough in, can you talk about that exactly? As far as what does that mean? Um, what is it, what are you asking about on the history? Let's start with not enough in. What are some of the things that cause a kid to not get enough in? Yeah, so I think it starts with like, I, and it's really I think sometimes we get we think about it too much, but it really is just let's get into the nitty gritty and just be like, all right, excuse me, I know you've been talking to a lot of people. Let's just start from the beginning. How do you mix this bottle? Making sure they mix it right. All right, how many ounces do you give them? Okay, and how after how long does it take them to feed that bottle? And then how many how many hours later do you feed them another one? And then even though you should they should the math should be the same, I always try to ask, okay, so how many bottles in a day do you make them total? And really, there's like because I mean to be fair, like I'm a parent, like again, like I, you're just so exhausted at eight to nine weeks, and you're just not sleeping. So we're asking redundant questions over in different ways to try to get to the reality of how much is actually going into this child. Um, and asking it in multiple different ways. So, uh, so how many ounces do you think you prepare in a day? Oh, okay. So, uh, how many b- bottles or how many things are you going through? You know, just different ways of asking the same questions. Um, and that is the most important part: the actual feeding history, because so much of it goes to not enough in. That the feeding history is really at the heart of it. And as part of that feeding history, can you give us a sense of um, how do you know that what they tell you is the right amount? I think especially as an intern, especially going from medicine to pediatrics, uh, they would tell me, yeah, we're feeding, you know, two ounces every five hours. And I would have to think that seems like not enough, but I need to check. And so is there a way that you kind of remember how much, how many ounces is appropriate for, for a specific age? Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think when you've done it long enough, you get, you get a general, there is kind of a general sense of like, okay, the first couple of months, like somewhere between two to four ounces every three to four hours is generally, depending on the weight, is um, is going to be sufficient. Um, but when they get hospitalized, this is uh, this is exactly what I do with uh, the residents. We kind of go into the nitty gritty of like, okay, let's legitimately see how many calories per kilo per day. And then recognizing like, okay, uh, again, everything in pediatrics is weight-based. So let's look at how much they weigh and let's see how much they're literally saying they're, they're bringing in and, re- and then remembering our gold standards. And it's interesting, this has even shifted over time because I remember um, back in my day when I was an intern, they, uh, I feel like Nelson's used to break it up by like how many calories you needed from zero to three months and then three to six months and six to nine and nine to 12. And they've become a little bit more liberal about it now. It's like 90 to 100 in the first six months per cake house per kilo per day. And then the next six months, somewhere between 80 to 90. Um, so there's a little bit more you can be a little bit more loose, but generally understanding that they need around 100 calories per kilo per day. And then really recognizing like, it doesn't matter like at each particular feed, this is more like when they're in the hospital. And sometimes we get into like these kind of strict regimens of how we try to feed them. 
And really like what I tell families, like, I don't care how you get these blank amount of ounces in them. You figure it out during the day. Like generally speaking, probably shouldn't go more than four hours, especially in the neonatal phase. Like more than four hours is excessive, but and once they get a little bit older, three or four months, you know, they can, some babies sleep six to eight hours a night and that's like physiologically normal. Um, so you just need to get it in them, um, in those, in that many, in that time frame that you have here. Now, as you're talking to these parents, you know, they're obviously, you know, I'm sure many of them are, you know, just, you know, upset and horrified that their kids are not doing well. And then they're going to the hospital. And then now you're saying they're not good parents because they're not feeding them well. Like, how do you go about, like, not saying that, like, being not using stigmatizing language, how to counsel the parents and, and be there for them and also understand that there are other probably a lot of other social determinants that, that are affecting um, their, their nutrition and their feeding? How, how do you go about that? Yeah, no, I think that that, I mean, the fact, the sole fact that more than 90% of the time is not enough in, um, and, and when, and I'll step back to say, like, there are a couple of you know, you know, some things are just misunderstandings on how you mix a bottle. There's rare, rare, rare times where, you know, someone's breastfeeding and their calorimetrics are off. I mean, that's exceedingly rare and also feels like a horrible, the worst diagnosis ever to have to tell a parent as well. But I think when they're in the hospital, it's a little bit easier, I think, to some extent, because now it's been stepped up, right? So once they're coming to the hospital, they recognize that something is wrong and somebody, people are worried. So I think I'm, I get a little bit more grace about asking about a lot of details that seem intrusive and could be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but I think at, at some level, you have to, throughout the conversation, it depends, you have to have a little bit of emotional intelligence to look at the family and read them and kind of understanding where they are. Um, and you get a sense when families are worried, like, oh, this is, this is like a thing about custody of my child and if I'm a good parent. And I think you have to step back and let them know, like, we are here to help you love your child like that. Our goal is to help your baby to gain weight. And we just want to figure out the best way to do that to help you so that you can do this successfully at home. But yeah, definitely, you know, it's hard. I think there's definitely times where if it's a repeat person, I think there's also a place where sometimes the situations are going to be a little bit emotionally charged where it's almost impossible to have a conversation that um, where someone's not upset. Because um, I think there, there definitely are times less common, but those situations where it's like, oh, this is the third time and, you know, social services of whatever is getting involved. So being honest, I think those situations, sometimes there is no easy way of saying it and just trying to use definitive terms. Like we are worried because your child is not gained weight, showing them a growth curve and being like, this is how it is. Um, and this is what we're worried about. Um, but then, you know, I, one of the things um, I'm super excited about, I'm part of a project that's screening for food insecurity for all patients that are hospitalized to, to um, our hospital. And not surprising, I guess, after the year we've lived in to recognize, like, not to recognize, to just see the truth of the matter, like social determinants of health are such a big portion of what happens to these kids um, and food insecurity and not being signed up for WIC. And I think, man, there's just something, probably a lot of it is the tone and just recognizing that like, hey, this is hard. You have a brand newborn baby. A lot of times like you have a newborn baby, you're exhausted. And we're, we're telling you, you're not feeding them enough. Uh, and just be like, I'm so sorry, this is really stressful. What are things that we can do to help you? What are the ways that we can try to, again, reframe it more into like, how do we work together to make this better, a better situation and sustainable moving forward? 
Now, we do have some medical students who listen to to this podcast. Can you explain what WIC is and how this this helps in, in this process? Sure. So WIC is, you know, federally funded, and that's that process of um, what you, you, when you get a little bit older, you think about food stamps and that, that kind of lineage. But in young infants, it's really that concept of you get, you typically go into a health department and you're actually getting screened by a physician for growth and they do lead screening and everything. And it has to do with um, your financial ability. So there's a WIC application. And now I'm blanking. I think it's like if you're one and a half times or below the po- 150% or below the positive level, I forget the actual, the specifics of it, but because of that you are funded and given um, kind of stamps to get powdered formula. That's the most common way um, to get formula. There are three different, it's good to remember, there are three different ways you can get formula. There's pre-made bottles, which are super duper expensive and nobody does. There's liquid fo- concentrate, which is now, I haven't seen someone use that in forever, but that does matter for mixing to know that it's a one-to-one. And then, uh, then there's the general most used is formula that's powder based. Um, but it's expensive, you know, like a can of that formula can be 30 or 40 bucks. Um, so sometimes it's helping families recognize, like helping them through that WIC application to make sure that they can actually get the formula that they need for the baby. And Adolfo, I know that you have dedicated a lot of your career and some of the research you do in social determinants of health. And as part of the show, we really try to spotlight some of the health inequities that occur with each topic. Um, are there specific access to care based on on race or is there other disparities that are prominent in failure to thrive that that are kind of identified or that that you're aware of man you know i'm i'm not aware of uh of it being published so much i know there's a lot a lot of the literature is about the etiologies and how to work up you know a lot of it i think a lot of stuff for hospitalists is like oh how to keep them out of a hospital like what do you really need to be hospitalized for i'm not i'm actually not aware of um, the literature on health disparities as it relates to food insecurity. Um, but I mean, it makes, it makes sense that these are social issues, that something is going on um, where the care providers, the different people who are caring for this infant, generally speaking, again, are not able to provide the formula. Normally, it's a formula not being able to either keep up a schedule or do those things. So there's just so inherently wrapped up in the social support structure of a of an infant. So and and so for for these to kind of round out these individuals who are coming in where we're concerned about not getting enough in because of um either, you know, systemic issues against them or their inability, you know, these social determinants of health that you mentioned, once they're in the hospital, once we've done a, a history on their intake, is there a certain amount that we're expecting them to grow each day to say I think we've cracked it guys, I think it's not enough in that they're growing well now under supervised feeding? Yeah, man, that you know, and that's that's like a very traditional mindset in the the like the workup and management of food to thrive. Like, keep the kid in the hospital for a couple of weeks, prove that they can gain weight, um, and that's just for all sorts of reasons. That's rife with like issues. Um, you know, I honestly, I I think I have this situation come up a lot with uh, with residents who are asking me like, oh, well, how long or how many days do we keep them in the hospital? And the reality is like. If they're proven that they can at least take in the formula and we can we're not getting reports of like frank vomiting, vital signs are reassuring, whatever workup we have done to date is um, okay, then I, there's not a lot of value because their day to day weight just it it's so reflective of like their stool and and urinary voiding patterns that it's really hard to get a gauge and sometimes it can be helpful. Um, I think 
sometimes in the the worst situations where it's like the third hospitalization, sometimes those become more of like this admission to keep somebody for a prolonged period of time to really quote unquote prove that it that they gain weight. But again, it goes back to like it, it's not it's not fair either, right? Like it's an artificial environment, like being in the hospital. Um, so you know, does it can it be helpful? Yes, but I think there's a lot of pushback against that anymore in doing that. So. That uh, that's so great to hear because I I thought the answer was thirty grams a day. I'm not gonna lie. I thought it was <laughs> I thought I thought it was gonna be thirty. Justin, the answer is thirty. Um, and this was such a a more thoughtful, nuanced answer that is appreciated. Yeah, yeah. That and that's you know that is the that's your that is your Nelson's textbook. Now you know I think they go twenty five to thirty grams per day yeah. on average, hundred kcals per kilo per day in the first six months. And and those things are true, but a day to day measurement, um. Just in general, I don't know that that's really going to get capture the heart of like just proving that they've gained weight and that's what it is. Yeah, that made sense. I think we like to control the things that we can. And so that's what we can focus on on a daily basis. But no, I think that absolutely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And now if we've kind of figured out that they are able to take in and not, you know, have any profuse vomiting or profuse diarrhea, anything like that, that's making the volume um, down, but they're still not gaining weight. And we say, okay, this isn't a amount in issue. Um, what do we kind of need to do next? Like, what are the labs that we need to get? What are we, what are we broadening, broadening our differential to? Yeah. And so it goes, the, one of the, I think this is failure to thrive or malnutrition as a diagnosis. It's like the quintessential lesson from medical school where, 90 plus percentage of the diagnosis is in the history and the exam. So it, again, like there is no, and this is also like a, there is no standard workup for failure to thrive. There's no like standard, you must get this and that. And um, I, I honestly, like one of my favorite articles that I love to share with medical students is this article from 1978. And in my institution, you can't actually access it electronically. So it's literally like a photocopied version, like someone literally used a scanner and that's how they send it to me. They sent it to me originally. And even then, and this study, this kind of concept has been repeated over and over and over again. And the reality of the matter is like labs are not very helpful typically. So in that one study, they looked at 184 kids with failure to thrive and you know, they did a slew of labs. And basically what they found was like in the history and physical, 34 of them, which is a big portion, 18% of them, they already were thinking about a diagnosis for these patients. And only of the 2,600 tests that were ordered, only 36 or 1.4% were actually diagnostically helpful. And it was in the patients that they already assumed that something was wrong. So again, and that bears out, I think, in multiple uh, studies that like really it depends on the history. So I think it goes back to like, what are the red flag symptoms? Um, so things that I think about for red flag symptoms, certainly cardiac causes, I think that's like the thing we're all worried about. So like, are they sweating when they feed? And this is honestly, it's only, I've only caught one once um, when I was on an attending only service. And it was really interesting. I, I talked to this dad and, you know, just kind of going through like my standard, like asking red flag symptoms. And I was like, ah, oh, does, does she sweat when she feeds um, this young baby? And he was like, oh man, she looks like an NBA basketball player coming off the court when she's feeding. So it's like, it's worth remembering. It's not subtle. Like these are things that some parents just, if it's their first time child, maybe they don't recognize it as uniquely different. Um, but sweating with feeds, the length of time it takes, do they have on exam loud murmurs or hepatomegaly? Those would be like the, okay, these are my red flags for heart causes. Um, and then I, I kind of probably lump it again into like, then there's 
it kind of goes into the not enough in. Then I think about like brain things. So then really trying to get a sense of like, does this baby have a normal neurologic exam? Do they have a normal suck and swallow? Um, and going to the history of like, are they vomiting and coughing up a lot of feeds? I'd probably say of all the people we talk to, again, there's no standard workup, but of the people that probably get the most involved in our failure to thrive patients, it's probably speech therapists um, who are like assessing a lot of the details that sometimes you just don't train about in medical school. Like there are X, Y, there's a preemie nipple, there's a newborn nipple, there's a size one, two, three, and all these nipples have different flow rates. Um, so they're probably the ones that kind of help us out the most with just the very simple mechanics of how to feed a baby. And um, a lot of times I'd say a very, I don't even know, I'm not going to make up a percentage, but a lot of times they're some of the most helpful people right off the bat um, to kind of help us um, figure out like if there's a swallowing issue. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as far as like abdominal cost. I mean, not it, too much out is like as far as that bucket. I mean, it's, it normally is pretty obvious. It's it's going to be a very simple story like, oh, yeah, they stool 12 times a day and it's like straight up watery. Uh, I, I will say, I guess maybe in the patient population where it's like a first time infant. So maybe some, you know, they're all yellow, loose CD stools. Maybe you hear that maybe in that population. But normally even then they'll have some kind of diaper dermatitis because it's going to be severe enough that there'll be breakdown. And then you start thinking about those malabsorption causes. So really, yeah, man, the money really is, depends on what you think is going on and kind of trying to focus that workup. Um, Are there any other labs that might be useful? Like, do we get an albumin on them? Do we do like thyroid studies? Should we do like an infectious disease workup if they have diarrhea? Like it's, yeah. is, it use, is any of that stuff useful? Like, are there things that we do for no reason? Yes, there are things. Yes, I think there's definitely things that we do for no reason. I think it starts with the fact that you you should start with what you have already. So as a hospitalist, too, and, and maybe I'll I'd speak to the general pediatrician a little different. Like as a hospitalist, there's very few times a, a baby comes to me and has had nothing done whatsoever, like that a pediatrician just brought them in. It's rare. Every now and then, like super scared, like this kid looks cachectic and breathing funny or something's wrong. That's, you know, a unique situation, but most of the time they have labs. So like, what is your state newborn screen? Like start at the basics. Like what is the newborn screen shown? Most of them have thyroid studies. And again, you can develop hypothyroidism later on. So I'm not um, discrediting that, but for a lot of the ones in the young neonate, young infant phase, that can be really helpful. You know, I, I, I can, again, it goes back to like the utility of them and how diagnostically helpful they are is pretty low. You can argue like a CBC and a CMP, are not unreasonable. If you get to the point of hospitalization, especially just to be like, okay, well, is this kid dehydrated enough that he's got like secondary renal issues? Um, you know, does he have acute hepatitis? I mean, pretty uncommon etiologies for um, failure to thrive, but these are not unreasonable things. Are they anemic? Are they actually, you know, losing blood in the stool? Um, are they so malnourished that there there's actually effects on their, like, um, you know, their cell counts and everything? So I think this is great. Just going back to, your original comment about do we need to be hospitalizing these kids? A lot of the things it seems like history taking of feeding patterns, um, you know, doing the physical exam for a neurological exam and looking for signs of congestive heart failure on history and exam, um, making sure that there's no other obvious clear respiratory issues or cachexia. Um, but to your point, what are we doing for these kids when we hospitalize them? What's the what's the game plan? What are we? What value are we adding? Um, when we bring them into the hospital? Yeah, I think probably the majority of the time. So I think the the most straightforward actual benefit, the times where we really are helping is when kids are 
literally dehydrated and need some IV fluids or an NG to feed um, NG tube, enteral nutrition via an NG tube. Otherwise, it's a lot of it's like expedited workup. Yeah, the, honestly, like the utility is in a lot of ways very limited. A lot of this can be done is I think that's a, a sh- kind of a framework shift in a lot of um, failure to thrive, the thought process, um, which is why I think there's there's some evidence that maybe these hospitalizations, because, you know, it ranges like when people tell you what the percentage Different studies have looked at what the percent, what percentage of all hospitalizations are due to failure to thrive in a pediatric hospital, and that range is broad, um, and it probably depends again where people practice medicine and what the practice patterns are. But it can be anywhere as low as you know around one to two percent, which is still not insignificant. One out of every fifty kids, you admit, all the way up to nine to ten percent. Um, so I think the utility is to step back because I, I guess a lot of it is I'm thinking about my specific institution and what we have and resources that are available. I think it depends on where you are in the country and what's available to you as an outpatient pediatrician. Um, so what is that, what can you actually accomplish as an outpatient um, judiciously versus, hey, like I'm kind of stuck. I'm limited by scope of resources. I'm in a rural place. And ultimately, like the easiest way to get this kind of accomplished in an expedited form is to hospitalize the kid. Um, but I, yeah, I, th- I think probably some of it is we're just really lucky here that we have, you know, multiple pediatricians and pretty good access to care and subspecialists and evaluations that a lot of times like, there is a, a little bit of a limited utility in what I can do. I can, I can get there a little bit quicker if people are getting like a little bit more ans- anxious about a uh, young infant. But a lot of the things my community partners do all the time without me ever knowing, and they're excellent at it. How do you tactfully discuss these kind of issues with parents? And man, now in retrospect, right, there's like all these things I really regret ever telling parents um, before I had kids. And some of it, some of it isn't necessarily like content wrong, but delivery wrong and tone and just being like, man, like, oh, man, I'm just so tired. I just totally understand. I'm so sorry. This is really hard. And like, wow, isn't baby? Babies are awesome, but they're really like exhausting. Uh, thank God all they do is eat, sleep, and poop, because if not, like, that's, I don't know what we do. Um, but yeah, I, they, you're right. There's all these little, like, things that you don't learn as part of, like, the just logistics of medical school and even in pediatric residency training. Yeah, parenting skills, I feel like. it's. Um, I Shannon, I had a very humbling experience. I think I was a senior resident, so it was, like, late in training at an urgent care where a kid came in with constipation. And was like, yeah, I don't know what's causing it. And the social worker said, "You're." They were using heaping scoops and like packing the uh, formula, and they were really packing it and using heaping scoops. And I said something like, "Great, they got more calories. That seems reasonable." <laughs> and they were like, "No, that." Um, <laughs> so I uh, made it through like three yeah. years of residency, and then learned that from our wonderful social worker. Don't do and, that. And the re- <laughs> the reverse of that is probably more where you get into the food insecurity and not having um, benefits to have formulas, that's where the mixing happens. That's where the issue of mixing is most of the time. It's families who are trying to spread it out a little bit yeah. more in subtle ways. And um, those are the ones actually, those are the ones that potentially come in with failure to thrive and symptomatic hyponatremia. So those are, those would be some of the ones that make us of the failure to thrive causes. The mixing can be some of the ones that can actually get young infants in a little bit more trouble as far as needing hospitalization, I guess we didn't even talk about that category as well. Well, and let me, I think that's a great segue into the next question of what are some of the complications of failure to thrive? Why are we worried about this? What are some things that can happen for kiddos who are failing to thrive and for the ones who, you know, unfortunately don't have access to 
to a regular primary care doctor for whatever reason or haven't been going to appointments or the ED or the hospital, um, what's the natural progression of the disease for failure to thrive? Man, you know, that you know, you certainly can get there's been some rare cases where, you know, you get bad enough where someone is truly like suffering from, you know, these things that you think about in developing nations, more like Kwashiorkor or Marasmus. Most of those are uh, from pretty severe neglect. And yeah, those are just hard to see in stomach in a lot of ways. But most kids, like, thankfully in the United States with appropriate follow-up. And then what's nice is like you have between a pediatrician and WIC, they're getting weighed and assessed at multiple different intervals early on in life uh, that most of the time you can catch these things and make uh, and help them out. As far as the long-term stuff, you know, I don't think that that's really perfectly clear. And it goes back to the fact that this is both a biological, there's a biological framework for it and a social determinants of health framework. And like all of that input can affect the way somebody grows and the neurodevelopment of a child. So it's so multifactorial. It's challenging. I think, you know, there's some evidence that about whether or not, you know, rapid weight gain right afterwards, how that affects insulin resistance, you know, and how our bodies start. Um, and some of this is a little bit of hand waving, right? Like, you know, they become a little, that's that whole concept of like, hey, we store more fat in these phases and that's how our body starts becoming more equipped. And does that have a long-term late effect of obesity? Um, maybe. And then there's just the fact that some kids are small. Again, like, like I said, life's a bell curve, right? So somebody's going to be, someone has to be on percentile number two. Um, and thankfully, these percentiles are better than they used to be when they used to be based on, I think there's there lots of struggles in the very beginning where a lot of this was based upon like a small population of white middle-class children. And now, you know, it's based upon larger databases and um, certainly the WHO as well has you know, a different approach when it comes to different countries and different nations. So, so much of it, there's like this genetic component um, as well. But I don't know. Um, again, I don't know. And then I'm not even going to open the can of worms, but then there's all the like, as you get older in age, it's hard to even start putting into the effects of like social pressures, the stigma of weight and social media. So uh, I think the long, long term outcomes are challenging to really just attribute to failure to thrive. Um, from a short term standpoint, I think it definitely in the acute phase affects development um, and activity. Like if someone's not being, if the baby's not being fed, then as far as metabolic things that babies do, eating is the most metabolically active thing very early on. But then after afterwards, you start growing, you start turning and rolling and sitting up and all these things require calories. So they all have effects on like development over time um, in the severe phase. But most kids, I said, again, it's hard to know the long-term sequelae. Well, and one thing as you're talking that I, that I was thinking about is obviously the, the sequelae, if there's a secondary cause, have consequences. And just to kind of close the loop and kind of close out on some of the differential of the too much burned calories, we talked about if you're an NBA player after feeds, we're worried about heart disease. And so for this, I would presume we would want to get an EKG and an echo. Are there other kind of higher level net steps where things that we would be looking for, for not just heart disease, what we would do, but if the kid is relatively tachypnic, or what are some of the other less common secondary causes that were suspect of in that 1.6% where there was already a suspected diagnosis? What are some of those um, items and what are the next steps in uh, in making those diagnoses? Sure. So I think, uh, again, all going with index of suspicion. So um, of like useful diagnostic imaging and labs, uh, you know, pyloric stenosis, if there's that history that's 
very consistent uh, with, you know, young infant, recurrent, uh, you know, everyone, I, I don't know how helpful the word is, what they always talk about the, um, what kind of vomiting they call it, uh, projectile, right? Everyone, I think everyone's kid thinks it's, project, everyone's parent thinks that their vomit, their kid's, kid's vomiting is projectile. Uh, but I think there's certain things like they're hungry right afterwards. It's somewhere in that six to, you know, four to eight week kind of time frame. So, and maybe they have abnormalities of, you know, true hypochloremic, hypokalemic, metabolic alkalosis, those things that we learn. Um, so pyloric ultrasound would be one. You know, the chest, you know, trying to think through like respiratory symptoms, certainly congenital pulmonary airway malformations would fit in that world. Most of them, um, they, I feel like a lot of them present after they've already had like a round of some infectious cause like bronchiolitis that had an atypical course. And then you kind of look at them a little bit and you're like, oh, they're a little bit on the smaller side. You know, it's hard because and maybe some of it's also biased and framed by the way they come in. So like, we probably wouldn't say, oh, that kid's a failure to thrive. We'd say, oh, that kid has congenital pulmonary airway from malformation. And part of that condition, part of the way that represents they're going to present is with malnutrition. Um, so some of it is also like, again, sometimes by the time they get to us, there's already been such an index of suspicion from my outpatient colleagues and how they think about it, that they're not even called failure to thrive by the time they get here because someone's hit like an underlying diagnosis. Um, and then think, and, you know, certainly we're super lucky as far as like advances in um, genetic testing. So, you know, if there are things about the child, there's dysmorphic features, strong family history, there's a potential certainly for that to be helpful to A, be able to understand what's the right growth curve there should be on, but then also like being able to get plugged them into early intervention and um, different resources. That's great. Thank you. So let's say we do this whole workup. We kind of figure out that there's an underlying medical condition that's leaning, leading them to be malnourished. When's kind of our, our our flag of saying, okay, this kid maybe needs a feeding intervention, um, such as like a G-tube or going home with an NG if that's a thing or all the tubes. When should we refer? When should we think about them? All the tubes. Um, all the tubes. Yeah, all the tubes. Um, so I'd say NG tubes are an interesting one because I think that also NG tubes also depend a lot on um, social determinants of like, where does this family live? What is their access to care when this NG tube gets out? How are they going to get it back in? Can't Will their general pediatrician feel comfortable with it? Can they do it at a local ER? Um, some institutions train families to put them back in um, right after. So that would just not, that's not where I was trained, That's uh, which is here um, at Children's. We of Alabama, we don't do that um, here for different reasons. Um, so it just depends on, the NG tube is always an interesting question. So I guess part of it, you have to go back to thinking like this happens. I think this actually does happen pretty commonly. And it's not always just for the diagnosis of failure to thrive, but any kid who is not swallowing safely for something anatomical, the easy, the straightforward ones are frank aspiration. So it goes back to like, what is the reason why that they're not doing this? Is this something trying to get a sense of the hardest part is like prognosticating, like how long is this going to last? And how long do I drag my feet and do an NG tube versus, you know, this is a classic question where like, how or do we just need to bite the bullet and like tell this family probably a gastrostomy tube and there's a lot of like therapeutic alliance and discussions with families that you have to work through to kind of think through what's the best for their child um, and your resources so the question's a little bit tricky because it just depends so much on what you think is going on and what the future looks like and that's man it's sometimes it's rarely straightforward um again kid frankly aspirating every consistency on a swallow study those are sometimes a little bit easier because we're like, I don't know why. Um, some, there's actually, 
there's some really interesting, I feel like we get these not uncommonly and uh, some of these kids show up for different reasons and they, they get a swallow study, you know, for, ah, man, someone will be like, oh, they got like an pneumonia once and somebody checked it or, and that's actually even a pathologic cause, but even like a kid who mildly coughs every now and then they'll get it and it, they fail it epically. And you're looking at this kid who's been feeding and actually some of them have been gaining weight. So it's really, some of those can be really challenging conversations with families. Um, but as far as failure to thrive, I'd say it's less common that we end up without an underlying genetic condition in which you feel like the chances that this child is going to be able to swallow normally or get in, you know, maybe if it's like a condition where they're burning, they have a higher metabolic rate. It, you know, I'm trying to think of a condition that wouldn't have a repair. Congenital heart disease, like those are going to probably get repaired. You can, and you'd probably balance that with just increasing caloric density in feeds. Um, and, and we didn't talk about that, but, you know, that's the classic question too for mixing, you know, 20 calories per ounce is the classic, like, this is what formula should have in caloric density. And that's one of the very, it's really important because we think about that as far as like how we augment that moving forward for some kids who just amp up their calories a little bit um, to get in the right amount, that 100 kcal magic number that we think about in young infants. Um, but in the absence of an underlying genetic sin, sin, uh, condition or like a significant perinatal injury where you think they're not going to be a swallow, I'd say it's probably uncommon that they go to, to a G-tube. A lot of times if they can swallow safely, we can figure out a way to get it in them or figure out what the under, treat the underlying condition. So it's a tricky question. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. That's what I'm sticking to it, though. I like it. Is there like a way that we could talk about like when to increase calories? I know that's like a like all of these are like vague questions, like that there's not a great answer to. So, but is there a time? Is there like a thing? Uh, yeah, besides asking What'd nutrition. You say? Yeah, what your nutritionist <laughs> tells you. It's yeah. kind of like what people are like. What what do you what studies you get? Well, like well, almost everyone gets a speech therapy consult. The speech therapist says you get a swallow study. That's what you we're gonna do. But you know, actually, and I, so this is these are time. There are definitely situations. So I think when I get a history of a child who, so aside from like obvious causes like congenital heart disease where they have like less of a desire to eat or they get tired really frequently, every now and then you'll hear the story of a of a parent who's like, I I promise I do all the things like I trying to feed them. I mean, I, like I get them naked and put ice uh, on their feet and they still fall asleep and I can't get them to take more than two or three ounces at a time. That's one of those situations where we'll do it. Or a lot of times um, if you're like, okay, they're far behind um, and you're talking about catch-up growth um, in those situations, normally uh, we'll bump it up um, a little bit. To, there's there's actually WHO calculators and for estimated energy requirements that can actually do some of this math for you to help you get like a sense of, it's a little bit more commonly in older kids, but a lot of times what we'll do is like, okay, this kid is such and such far behind to help them catch up. We're going to bump them to 115 cake house per kilo per day. But I'd be lying if I said there's like an exact science to that. There's, there's some generalities there of bumping it up and helping them catch up if they're like completely off the curve. And then also when you ask your nutritionist and they tell you to do it. <laughs> that's what I figured. That's, that's what I figured the underlying answer was. Yeah. It's a good pearl. Yeah. It's a good pearl. You know, again, we're a team. Thank God for all the, th the providers in the hospital. Um, usually the last question I ask before we start wrapping up is, is there, are there any like cool things on the pipeline in the future? Like cool tests or other like new types of nutrition that I, I don't even know where to, where to go with this. Cause it's sort of, it, it doesn't really quite fit into our, our topic as well, but are there yeah. any cool things in the future that you see coming down the pipeline in this area? 
I mean, I guess, you know, and this is, I mean, I, I get it, it's a little bit of a stretch, but I guess like the whole realm of genetic testing is probably something down the pipeline that potentially could have some effect on these things and anticipating problems with weight gain much sooner. I think, you know, tests for like, you know, our uh, comparative genomic hybridization, that cost and whole exome sequencing is now, I was just at a grand rounds, they were talking about like, it's down, now hovering around a, a little bit under $1,000 per test, something that used to cost, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 and you know, it was mostly experimental design. Um, so, you know, the, and the ever-growing newborn state screen, which is awesome because we're capturing kids early on. So potentially, I think as far as like, they'll thrive in a lot of things, that might be broadly speaking something. I don't know if there's one particular test otherwise. Procalcitonin. Procalcitonin. <laughs> That's right. Fecal cal fecal procalcitonin. That's what the next test should be. There you go. <laughs> um, and how about any other take-home points for our listeners from whatever level? What are the big things that you think are important to know in caring for a patient with suspected failure to thrive? Yeah. And I think if, if, if hopefully you've gathered it by now, by multiple iterations too. But again, it, it is such, in some ways it's so simple because it's three buckets, but in some ways it's really complicated because those buckets can be really deep um, in their differentials. But again, it goes back to like, this is the this is the thing they talked about in medicine, like the history and the physical are, are everything in failure to thrive admissions. Like you just, there is no shotgun approach to help you diagnose this, to help you like diagnose an underlying cause. Great. Excellent. Well, anything you want to plug before we, we say goodbye to our audience? Uh, the University of Florida, go Gators. How about them? <laughs> right? Here we go. Wow. <laughs> are, you, are you from Florida? Are you a, a Florida native? Are you a Oh, yeah, yeah. No, a I'm Florida from, man? Nice. Yeah, I'm from Miami. I joke around. I'm like one of those people who like never, like a Cuban from Miami, like never in my 10-year life plan did I think I was going to live in Alabama. There you go. And 10 years later, here we are. I love it. So... All right. Go Gators. <laughs> All right. Adolfo, thank you so much for joining us. This yeah. was this was wonderful. And I feel like it has a very uh, a simple algorithm approach to a otherwise complicated presentation. And I think um, this is great, regardless of level of, of a great way to approach a very common presentation in clinic and the ED and an inpatient. So um, thank you again for, for sharing your time, your expertise. We really, really appreciate you uh, joining the Cribsiders. Awesome. I thank appreciate you. you guys. Thank you guys so much. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website, www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Shannon Snellgrove, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for joining. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Shannon Snellgrove. And this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. Thank you and good night and good morning and noontime and lunchtime and second breakfasts and all these other things. Make sure you eat so you grow. Have a good one. If we learned anything, we learned that. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. 
Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.